Hey there, Kubrick fans. If you like what you hear during this episode, be sure to visit our website at thekubrickseries.com for more episodes and uncut interviews from the series. And you can also consider making a one-time or recurring monthly donation in any amount of your choosing if you'd like to support our podcast. That's thekubrickseries.com. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in to the Kubrick series Uncut. In this episode, we speak with Jeffrey Cox. Mr. Cox is the author of the influential book, The Wolf at the Door, which explores the remarkable patterns of cinematic discourse on Germany and the Holocaust in Stanley Kubrick's work. First of all, I guess let's start with, uh, he never made a, a film directly about the Holocaust, even though he had plans to for many years that never came fruition yeah but be beyond um beyond the obvious what were the aspects of nazi germany and the holocaust that you, you think fascinated him the most well he was quoted as saying that he had never seen a history of nazi germany that he didn't like so you're right to say that he was fascinated by the subject and i think that's probably due to the fact that it was hard to be an intellectual particularly a Jewish intellectual in the middle of the 20th century and not be at least interested in what happened in Nazi Germany. And I think it was particularly, had a particularly intense effect upon Kubrick, not only because of his intellect, but because he was, uh, he grew up, he was a young boy when the Nazis came to power and uh, an adolescent when the Nazis were rampaging all over Europe and carrying out the final solution. And I think he was a preternaturally uh, observant child, uh, which is hardly surprising to learn when you see his films. He's always been a great observer and uh, a studier of mankind, of humankind. And so it's not surprising that as a, as a young child, as somebody who read a lot, played chess, went to lots of movies, that the central drama of his time in the 30s and 40s, that is, the Nazi conquest of Europe and the final solution, would have attracted his early attention. So I think it was both intellectual and very, very personal. Mm -hmm. and, and I think you find that as a, there's a, a major theme, if you could even argue it's the major theme in most of his films, and that is the phenomenon of a child or a young person finding out about all the horrors of the world. There's a, a very moving line in Steven Spielberg's Artificial Intelligence, which, of course, he took over from Kubrick and made into a film. Mm -hmm. And when Monica abandons the robot boy in the forest, she says, she cries to him as she's driving off, I'm sorry I didn't tell you about the world and how all the horrors in it. And if you look at The Shining and other films, especially in the 70s, A Clockwork Orange and A Barry Lyndon, the motif is one of, in the case of The Shining, a child, in the case of Barry Lyndon, a young man, in the case of A Clockwork Orange, a teenager, a 15-year-old boy, uh, discovering the world, and it's a world of evil, evil and danger. And so that sort of motif is one of the reasons I think The Shining in particular was Kubrick's main vehicle in terms of 
making the Holocaust film he otherwise didn't make. And mm -hmm. the Holocaust film he did want to make, which is, you rightly said, he didn't make, Aryan Papers, was based upon a, a, a novel that was a, actually based upon, it was a memoir, actually, a novelized memoir by Louis Begley um, called Wartime Lies. And it was about his experience as a hidden child in Poland. And he had a very Kubrickian experience and also a very Kubrickian, Kubrickian reaction to his experience that came out very clearly in the novel. And that was that survival is not ennobling. Um, mm -hmm. To survive the Holocaust, he and the people who took care of him had to lose their character. They had to lose their innocence. And you certainly see that in The Shining. With Even though Danny prevails at the end uh, and escapes the hotel, we know he's never going to be the same because he has been exposed to the inherent evil in the world. And that's why I think uh, there's a very definitely a strong Holocaust subtext in that film in particular. Yes. And I've spoken to a lot of people about The Shining, and it's amazing to me. Uh, Kubrick's films are uh, so kind of ambiguous, uh, generally. But uh, The Shining can be viewed as, a, a, you know, a standard horror film, a standard mm -hmm. as you get with Kubrick. <laughs> but in a way, right. it's his most deceptively cryptic, because it's the one that lends itself to to more more theories and revelations than any Kubrick film on his resume that I've found. Right. Um, I think go you ahead. may be right about that. Yeah. Uh, so, so tell me how uh, other ways that this the, the Holocaust, the indirect kind of uh, reaction to the Holocaust, pops its head in in The Shining. Well, I, it's interesting that. When I went to see The Shining, at that juncture, I was interested in Kubrick before I knew I was interested in Kubrick. I had seen Dr. Strangelove and 2001 and even Spartacus and The Clockwork Orange, and I had always thought Kubrick films were enjoyable and artistic. And so I saw an ad for on television for The Shining, and it was, of course, the ad was of the elevator doors sliding open and that that mass of blood flowing out, and that struck me. It did the job that ads are supposed to do. It got my attention. And so I went and saw the film, and I was disappointed. I thought, well, gosh, that was it wasn't scary. It was interesting in some ways, but my initial reaction was not his best work. But there was always something that drew me back to it. it. I kept thinking about the film and even dreaming about it. And I've had other colleagues of mine who had the same reaction, is that their first impression was negative, but the film just would not leave them alone. And so I went back to see it again and again and again. And I began to see what you always see in Kubrick films, all these little details with which he fills his scenes. And they keep popping up. I had a person write me a couple of weeks ago saying, did you know that in The Shining, on the bulletin board next to the phone when Wendy is calling the ranger's office, there's a little sign that says, I scream. 
E-Y-E-S-C-R-E-A-M. And so if you Google that, you'll find that it's a Freudian term, which means the fear of being pierced in the eye by a sharp, sharp object. And then there are all, of course, sorts of other entries. I think there are several rock bands named Ice Cream. But just a little detail like that, and you wonder, why is that there? And in terms of The Shining, it struck me that obviously Danny is seeing things. He sees into the past and into the future through his mind, but it's very much a question about witnessing and, be, and, and seeing visions of what the world has been like and is like and will continue to be like. And there's a motif here of eyes and seeing and having one's eyes open. So that little sign on that bulletin board is another very subliminal message that says eyes and screams and terror and horror, uh, which, of course, belongs in a horror film. Uh, but it also, I would argue, uh, certainly has something to do with the specifics of the history that Kubrick both couldn't approach and felt compelled to approach. And as I've watched the film over the years, uh, and since I've wrote my book on it and, and, and written other things about it, I keep noticing things. For example, uh, after Danny is examined by the pediatrician, he's passed out after seeing his first vision of the Overlook's horrors, um, the pediatrician and his mother, Wendy, leave the room. They're going to go talk, and he's supposed to stay in bed. And they, of course, go out his door. And on his door are, as you'd expect to find, on a child's room door, all sorts of cartoon characters. And what's interesting about the shot as Wendy and the pediatrician leave the room is that it's quite apparent that there has been what you might otherwise think is a continuity error. One of the cartoon characters is missing. It's quite obvious. There's a big space where before there was a cartoon character. And we know that because when Danny is in the bathroom about to have his first vision of the elevator doors and the Overlook Hotel and what's in store for them and what the world is really like, the camera tracks in slowly from inside Danny's room toward the bathroom. And it goes by the door on the left, and you see all the cartoon characters. And on, right on the edge of the door, the last cartoon character you can see is the one that's missing. And it's Dopey from... Snow White and the Seven Dwarves. And clearly, unless it is a continuity error, which I doubt, Kubrick has removed it because what he's representing there, again, at a very subliminal Freudian level, out of the corner of your eye sort of thing, is that Danny is no longer as innocent. He didn't know before. Dopey doesn't know anything. And now he does know something. And then, as... Wendy and the pediatrician move down the hall toward the living room to talk about Danny. There's a shot from the end of the hall, and they approach, and you can see into what is clearly Jack and Wendy's bedroom. And on the wall, on the bedroom, way in the background, and of course it's in focus because Kubrick was a master of that sort of thing, deep focus, mm -hmm. so he could put lots of things in the background that you could see. There's a big poster on the wall, or I guess it's a painting, and it's a painting that was very popular back in the 1970s. Uh, 
They were called big-eyed children, and they were these cute, kitschy drawings of cute children that had huge eyes. And there's that. And again, it reinforces the idea of eyes and seeing and suddenly having one's eyes opened, as it were. So constant little details like that underscore this motif of a child discovering a very dangerous, what Dana Paulin, another scholar on Kubrick, has called a dangerous found world. Now, as far as the Holocaust specifically goes, this gradually dawned on me as I saw all sorts of things that were specific to that time period and to the nature of the horror that the Nazis perpetrated by means of the so-called final solution. Jack's typewriter, a German machine, Adler, which means eagle, and Kubrick very often in his films would use the eagle as a representation of dangerous state power, and mm -hmm. it's an obvious one for Germany. Uh, why would Jack have an Adler typewriter? Again, because Kubrick was a realistic filmmaker, not a naturalistic one. He wanted things to be real because he's talking about the real world, but they're not going to be naturalistic because he wants to use everything in his scenes to make larger points. And so the question would be, well, why an Adler typewriter? And the prosaic answer is, well, Kubrick had an Adler typewriter, and apparently that's the one they used in the scene. However, because it's Kubrick, at the very least, Kubrick would have to be aware that putting a German typewriter in his film and having it be the center of Jack's descent into madness um, would raise questions in the audience. And so it seems likely that he was at least aware of the associations people might make, or I think even more likely, he was setting up a pattern of reference on a very subliminal level that said, you know, I'm talking about in the context of a horror film, I'm using that artificial horror as a means to get at the real horror that concerns me. And certainly Kubrick's always been concerned with the bad things that have happened in the world. Um, and so it would be hardly surprising that he wouldn't make reference to the Holocaust. And, then, and so there's that typewriter. And then the thing that I think really clinches it for me, if, if it weren't there, I would be much less sure about my thesis and that is the constant repetition of the number 42. And mm -hmm. 42 is a number that in many ways in the history of the Holocaust is associated with the final solution because it was in January of 1942 that the Nazis all gathered and Reinhard Heydrich told all these other top Nazis, in effect, that Hitler had said, we're going to do this, we're going to kill them all, and here's how we're going to do it. And so the fact that 42 keeps popping up throughout that film is can't be an accident. Mm -hmm. There can't be that many accidents. It's clearly part of a pattern of reference. And then if you go back into Kubrick's own cinema and you go back all the way to Lolita, you find out that Vladimir Nabokov, in his novel, used the number 42 as something that would pop up in the life of Humbert Humbert. Everywhere he went was the number 42. It, it would be an address. It would be a hotel room number. It would be a highway sign number. And Nabokov 
used 42 as a symbol of the sort of malevolent fate that was stalking Humbert and also of his own paranoia. And although Kubrick doesn't make anything of it in his own film of Lolita, he only mentions 42 once visually, I think that stayed with him. And I think, you know, he was a great lover in coincidences. He just was fascinated with coincidences. And he essentially saw them, on on the one hand, he saw them as Jungian. That is, Jung, Carl Jung, the, the Swiss psychologist, said that, you know, coincidences are signs of these large forces, spiritual forces moving in the world. And so Kubrick was interested on those grounds. But Freud also had a thing about coincidences, and he said, of course, that they were the sign of unconscious motives and of neurotic patterns of behavior, and and Kubrick was very well read in Freud. And so I'm sure all of these things together culminated in his decision at some level of consciousness to use that number 42 as a sign and a symbol of the... Nazi extermination of the Jews. Um, And there are lots of other things in the film. The music, a lot of the music um, has connections with the 1930s and 40s and with fascism and with Nazism. And so all of those things taken together, I think, show that while Kubrick, for artistic and personal reasons, didn't want to make a film about the Holocaust or finally couldn't make one, he had to at at several levels of consciousness give expression to that particular interest. And I think it came out of, it came out most clearly in The Shining. And it was in the 1970s, it was a decade in which there was increased pop culture interest in Hitler and the Nazis, and of course Kubrick Mm -hmm. was certainly aware of that. And the 1970s was also the decade in which he read Raoul Hilberg's The Destruction of the European Jews, which was the first great study of the Nazi final solution, and he recommended it to people. And I found out that he corresponded with Hilberg and was interested in Hilberg's view of what books there might be upon which he could base a movie about the Holocaust. And it was after he finished The Shining and had read Hilberg that he began thinking seriously about looking for a property to make into Holocaust film that he finally found when he read Begley's Wartime Lies, which was published in 1991. So that's at least some of what I see in that film that indicates this this central concern. Well, you mentioned you, you mentioned the number 42, and, that, and and that's something that I've been looking at as well. Uh, recently, and I saw it in the um, uh, in the Danny's uh, jersey uh, yes. that he's wearing. That they're watching the summer of '42 yes. uh, on TV. Where where else does it pop up? Well, let's see. Um, well, there's a pattern in the film that is similar to, if not inspired by, a pattern in Thomas Mann's. 1924 novel, The Magic Mountain. And Mann wrote that novel. It was about a sanitarium called the Berghof High in the Alps, and it was a place where the rich and famous of Europe went to recover from tuberculosis. And, of course, 
Mann was using it as a symbol of the decline and fall of European civilization. And in that novel, Mann uses the number seven and multiples of the number seven as a sign of this sort of creeping despair and of this the threats to civilization. And so they're everywhere and they surround them. And, and you see the same thing in The Shining. Uh, some of them were taken over from King's novel, but others are invented wholesale by Kubrick. Um, as in King's novel, the Overlook Hotel uh, was built in 1907, uh, which was the same year that the protagonist in The Magic Mountain comes to the Berghof uh, mm-hmm. for his rest cure. Um, there's, of course, also the 1921 party that makes an appearance in the film and is, of course, the venue for Jack being in that photograph at the end of the film, 21 being three times seven, of course. Uh, Kubrick himself was born in 1928, another multiple of seven, seven years after 21. And then 14 years later, um, 1942, uh, is that year, the um, which has been used by other artists to, as a metonym for the Holocaust. You can find other films and books in which the mention of 42 clearly is a talisman. Everybody knows what it means and what they're referring to. Um, other specific instances in The Shining of 42. Um, gosh, right now, let me think. Um, certainly on his jersey. Um, wow, you've got me. That's surprising. Isn't there isn't there something like multiples of the room number? I mean, is it, there. Oh yes, some... that's right. Uh, this is a little bit one off. Um, in the novel, the room where the Grady girls are murdered is, or where the Grady where the, where the woman in the bathtub can be found, um, mm-hmm. is two seventeen, and Kubrick changes that to two thirty seven, and. Actually, this was a, a student of mine in a course that said that, well, you know, if you're looking for the number 42, the product of 2 and 3 and 7, if you multiply those numbers, is 42. Now, Kubrick said that he had to change the number because the owners of the Timberline Lodge, where the second unit work is done, that's where they show the, when the, that's where the exteriors of the hotel are shot, um, according to Kubrick, the owners of the Timberline Lodge didn't want people to be afraid of staying in their room 217, and so they made that a condition of him using the over uh, using the Timberline, and that makes sense. And so he changed it to 237. Now the question is. Why 237? He could have chosen any other number. Um, and it is true, as you note, that one can get 42 out of 2 and 3 and 7. And since there is a pattern of multiples of 7 in the film, uh, it would be consistent with that pattern. And I wouldn't be at all surprised that Kubrick very consciously thought, well, that's another place where I can bury this reference to the ultimate horror that underscores all the horrors in the Overlook Hotel, because quite clearly the Overlook Hotel is a typical Kubrick high space of cold, malevolent danger. 
-hmm. And it is a symbol of incredible earthly power. And it's very high up. It's literally at the top of the world, and it overlooks everyone. And overlook has many meanings, meaning to supervise or or to control and so forth. And so it wouldn't be at all surprising that Kubrick uses that space as a space where the people, as in the actual story of The Shining, um, carry out murders uh, in defense of their position and out of the passions of their mind. Uh, so you're right in saying, and I'm right in saying, I think, that <laughs> 237 uh, is another manifestation, hidden appropriately enough, uh, Kubrick doesn't want to make this easy. He wants it to be a pattern, but he's very concerned about constructing a, 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 a pattern that reflects the way in which the Freudian mind works, in which yeah. that which is most dangerous is the most deeply laid. But because it's always there as a feature of one's personality or, or characteristics of the human race, it's always going to be there. It's always going to be exerting its force. And so little hints will be coming out, you know, the number on a jersey um, or the, the room number and so forth. Um, you know, we spoke to uh, uh, Bill Blakemore f for this oh, yeah. show. So about the, and, American and, na the Native Americans. Right, and he, he he wrote the article, yes, about the, the, the film being uh, concerned with the genocide of the American Indian, and that, yeah. that very much parallels... Uh, the Holocaust uh, allegory uh, in the film as well. Well, yeah, uh, I mean, reading Blakemore's review, I think it was in the San Francisco Chronicle or something, early mm -hmm. on, that was one of the uh, articles that made me think, yes, there is a, a concern here with massive state violence against minorities. And so I would say, and and the fact that Kubrick makes more of that, the idea of an Indian burial ground on which the Overlook is located, when it was mm -hmm. built, they had to, as Ullman tells them, they had to fight off some Indian attacks and so forth. That's something that isn't in King's novel, as I remember, and that Kubrick imports. Uh, mm -hmm. I think King has it in other novels of his about Indian burial grounds, but not in The Shining. So I think Blakemore was absolutely right, and I think that shows that Kubrick, as usual, is concerned about organized violence especially in the modern world, where the state can become this powerful force for evil, and which is, you know, the power of the state only magnifies the inherent evil that Kubrick sees in human beings generally. What, what fascinates me about his um, adaptations, because uh, uh, the vast majority of his films um, were adapted from pre-existing novels, 2001 being the exception since that was being yes. crafted uh, uh, alongside the actual making of the film, but right. is is that he seems to use the book as a shell, and he has his own particular ideas that he kind of wants to funnel through that material. So when yes. people when people criticize The Shining because it, it it's not the Stephen King book. Right. Uh, that's essentially not understanding how Kubrick made movies. <laughs> well, that's right. And, of course, as you know, Stephen King himself was very much upset with Kubrick's version. And Kubrick does change the book considerably. That, that was underlined to me when, I don't know if you've have you seen the Blu-ray edition of The Shining? I have, yes. Right out a few years ago? 
you notice they changed the color palette on that? It's much darker, and the greens and the reds and the blues come out in a much more deep fashion. And in, and in its own way, it's very striking and attractive to watch. But it actually ruins the film because when the yellow tennis ball rolls to Danny when he's playing on the floor, it's not mm -hmm. yellow. It's sort of an orangey-red, and that's just all wrong. So... Um, you know these, mm. the, as you say, Kubrick takes properties, but then he molds them because he has a very strong idea of what he wants, and he spends so much time working on these films, and he's taking in so much information from various sources that his basic idea remains, but it evolves. And you know, right through the filming, all these takes because he's looking for something he's not sure he's found yet. So it's not surprising that, and I think it's a very good thing because he himself was a great artist, that he would use sources but then change them and enrich right. them um, in a way that uh, makes his version in some ways the definitive one. I think, I don't know to what extent this is true or to what extent it bothers Stephen King, but I think when people think of The Shining now, they think of the film, they don't think of the book. And yeah. I think that's because even though there was a lot of initial disappointment in the film, it's it's the sort of film that really gets under your skin and into your mind. There's something much more creepy about it than your standard startle moment horror film. Uh, and I remember when the film came out, uh, very famous and, and very good film reviewer, Stanley Kaufman of The New Republic, he mm -hmm. hated that, hated The Shining. And he said, you know... Kubrick is just a failed filmmaker because he doesn't know how to make a horror film. And Kaufman said you can see that when in the one really good scary moment they have when Jack is sneaking up on Wendy when she's looking through his manuscript and she realizes that something is very, very wrong. Kaufman said, terrible. Kubrick could have scared us, but instead he shows Jack sneaking up and he kills the entire moment. Well, mm -hmm. Kaufman didn't understand what Kubrick was after he didn't want us to be scared. He wanted us to see those people on the screen scared so that we could identify with them and say, no, this is, this is really real. This isn't just a means of making me jump and making me feel like I've spent my $3 well in seeing this film, but rather it's to open my mind and my heart to these people because when Jack sneaks up on Wendy and scares the hell out of her and she screams and turn around, turns around clutching her bat, you really feel for her you really think, oh, my gosh, this poor woman. It's not about you getting a thrill in the, in the theater audience. It's about her as a human being who herself is discovering something terrible about her world. And I think yeah. that's a much more valuable thing. And I think people over time appreciate that more than just a good scare. I think so, too. And, and, and that, that reminds me of how wonderful uh, Shelley Duvall was in that film. I think that's one of the great raw performances in, in I agree. Genre. I agree. I uh, think she's been unfairly criticized, just like Jack Nicholson has. I think those are both wonderful performances. Absolutely. In a shape like Kubrick, but it was uh, based upon their abilities. I need to tell you that uh, I'm having a lightning storm here right now. Oh, dear. <laughs> so, so just in case, uh, if, if this call drops... It's okay. it's because my power has gone out. I don't oh, want you to think that the hurricane is coming upon you. 
No, I, I don't even know if it's the outer bands or anything from the hurricane. I'm in Florida. Oh, I'm right. in Florida, so it's away from me. But oh, I see. Um, I wanted to ask you about uh, Kubrick's worldview because it's it would seem to be pretty dim from from watching his movies. But do you see any hints of optimism in a movie like The Shining? Well, you know, I think he was a modernist, and so modernists tend to think that if we're clear-eyed about dangers, maybe that very fact will help us mitigate the horror. I, I don't think he was a misanthrope or a cynic. I think he was a skeptic. I think he was a very bright observer of the world who wanted to warn people about the dangers so that perhaps there could be improvement, perhaps we could avoid these things in the future. So I think, yes, he had a very dim view of the world, but that's, I think, because at the time that he lived in particular, and especially when he was starting out, the world itself was very dim. Um, so I don't see him as someone who counsels despair. I see some, he's someone who wants to engage people intellectually, artistically, and emotionally to make them even more aware than they were before of what the stakes are and what the problems are. And, you know, he, he, his own life, I think, was, was rather pleasant, and, and, and apparently he could be terrible to work for on the set, uh, but apparently he had a, unlike many people in that movie business, had a fairly normal family life, and he was mm -hmm. indulgent toward children and animals and... Uh, he, he enjoyed a good conversation, and he was in many ways a, a thoroughly nice man. I mean, even Fred Raphael, who had some unkind things to say about Kubrick, um, also commented upon his charm and upon the fact that he was a, well, to use a Jewish term, a mensch. You know? Uh, so well, I, I and, don't, you know, he's not and, a prophet of doom. And, and very much uh, a, a loving family man. I mean, every account yes. you hear of him, and obviously a very successful marriage, he married into a German family. Well, uh, yes, and not just any German family, a German family that had connections with some of the people who were closest to Hitler and to the regime in the artistic world. I mean, mm -hmm. uh, Christian's uncle was Weitharlin, probably the most famous director in Nazi Germany who made some odious films for Hitler. And Kubrick was fascinated by that. He wanted to make a film about Veit Harlan, um, and again, never did because it was this old Kubrick approach avoidance. Boy, I'd really like to do this, but no, it scares me too much, so I won't. Uh, so I imagine that Christiane probably had all sorts of things. She told him about her life in Nazi Germany. Uh, her father, um, Veit Harlan's brother, um, was also active. He was an opera singer and he was an opera singer for the Nazis and occupied Holland. And so Kubrick married into a family that had direct experience with the arts and with the horrors of Nazi Germany, which, of course, I, clearly that's not why he married Christiane, but, right. <laughs> <laughs> but it certainly reinforced his interest uh, in all of this. Uh, you know, Growing up when he did and who he was, it just seems to me impossible, especially given what we can see in his films, and not just The Shining, Dr. Strangelove and others, that he would not take on the issue of Nazi Germany. It fascinated him, but of course it also horrified him, because it seemed to be, you know, for a while there, until the First World War, it seemed like the world, the modern world was going to be an improvement, 
and then it turns out that in many ways all the modern world does was make our weapons a lot more destructive. Uh, yeah. You know, uh, children now with even more dangerous toys. Um, so that German connection, uh, and that's sort of typical. Kubrick had not just a fascination with Nazi Germany, he had a great admiration for German film, expressionist film in particular, German directors, German technicians. He loved machines, and the Germans were very good at that. Um, the fact that he had lots of Germans work for him on various films, Paths of Glory, 2001, um, uh, meant that he was constantly refreshing himself in terms of German history and German culture. Right. There's one other thing that I wanted to review uh, in terms of the, the optimism, the, the worldview that we are speaking of just a moment ago. Um, is, isn't it uh, optimistic, just the idea that for Danny to escape the evil of his father, he retraces his footsteps at the end of The yeah. Shining. Yes, it shows capability and hope. I mean, one could even think of Kubrick seeing maybe a lot of himself and Danny, who yeah. has been confronted with this absolute horror, and yet he's resourceful, he's observant, and he can react and escape the danger uh, and go out into the world. Although one wonders, one has to wonder, I think Kubrick wants us to wonder, is what will be the effects upon this young boy? Because unlike Kubrick, who of course was never in any danger living in America in the 30s and 40s, Danny, of course, is right in the center of this horror. And again, it's the theme of uh, the book Wartime Lies and certainly would have been the theme of Aryan papers about a young boy who was actually in Poland under the Nazis. One has to ask, like the young boy Maciek in Wartime Lies and Aryan Papers, what are the effects of Dan on Danny going to be? I, I wonder if Kubrick ever thought about making a sequel. Probably not, because he had lots of other projects. And I think he probably also... Hello? Uh, I'm, I'm here. Did, did oh. you get cut off just for a second? No, some other voice, a woman's voice came in. It, it said you're in the queue now or something? Yes, you're yeah. in the queue. Oh, yes. Right. <laughs> I, I'm that so happens, glad. That I, happens, that happens at random. I have yeah. no idea who that voice belongs to, but it, it, doesn't, a, it doesn't record from our end, so we're that okay. That was interesting. <laughs> well, but I think, you know, I think we're supposed to wonder, and of course Kubrick loves leaving things unresolved. He loved, as you know, open narratives. Is that I'm not going to wrap right. all this up for you at the end because that's not the way the world is and it's not the way I am. But I think we're supposed to wonder, okay, Danny has escaped, but we have to wonder um, about the effects on him. Again, I think it's typical Kubrick. He's not going to say, oh, he's ruined for life. Um, on the other hand, he isn't going to show some sort of happy ending like Stephen King did in his, where his father reappears as a ghost and smiles at Danny and everything's okay. Kubrick's going to have none of that. I mean, Jack is frozen into that photograph at the end of The Shining because he's always there. The hotel will always be there. People like Jack, servants of evil, will always be available. They'll always be on call. They'll always be on staff. But yet Kubrick wants to leave us a little bit of an out. Uh, there was originally supposed to be a, another final scene to The Shining where Danny is shown recuperating in a hotel room and Ullman visits and I think... Uh, um, 
the, Thro- the throws him the, the tennis the throws him the tennis ball, I think. Um, yes, yes, and there was and I and I I've never seen that scene, of course, uh, and but Kubrick finally decided it was it was probably too much of a give to the audience is that you want to yeah. leave them more uncertain and you want to end with Jack's face, I think, yeah, on the face of evil or the face of the person who serves evil um, rather than with Danny. So there's there's moderate hope, I think. Mm-hmm. There's also uh, the the scene that uh, uh, kind of gives gives your book its title. Uh, the, oh yeah, the, the wolf at the, the wolf at the door that we haven't discussed yet, and the whole fairy tale of the three little pigs. I mean, that's not. Oh yes, it's not not some kind of inadvertent uh, fairy tale put in there just for the sake of having him say something hubris of that saying. What what does that mean to you, that fairy tale? You know, I'm trying to remember whether we know whether Jack Nicholson extemporized that, because he did extemporize some other lines, and Kubrick, of course, encouraged that. I rather think in the scripts that I've seen that that is in there, so Kubrick wanted the three little pigs. Uh, I think... What Kubrick is doing there is showing that even in childhood stories, there are intimations, very clear intimations, of the real dangerous world out there. Mm -hmm. And, of course, this would have been underscored for Kubrick himself, because when he was a kid, that very famous Disney cartoon came out and, and, and won an Academy Award. So I think, again, you have Kubrick there taking a genre, in this case, the genre of childhood cartoons, and twisting, twisting this cartoon around to show that the cartoon itself, while light and entertaining and not dangerous to anyone, uh, is in fact another indication of our consciousness of those things within us and around us that are antisocial and, and dangerous and malevolent. Um, and I, the idea of the wolf at the door, I just it, it struck me that that's sort of Kubrick the modernist, is that mm-hmm. at least the wolf hasn't gotten through the door, and Jack doesn't, or at least he he's well he no he doesn't because Wendy, being rather resourceful, cuts him with the knife. Um, so I think there's there's in that Kubrick's hope that people who are aware can resist evil, and if not always triumph, at least in resisting, show that evil has a counterpart in good, and that people can, uh, there is some hope, in other words. Again, I don't think, I don't think Kubrick was a a cynic, um, or that he had completely given up on humanity. I think if he had completely given up on humanity, he wouldn't have made the films, because I think he wanted the films to do something to raise our consciousness. Uh, plus, he just liked making films. You know, <laughs> I mean, what the well, hell? He discovered I'm good at it. I'll keep doing it. Yeah. Another thing that strikes me about Kubrick, <clears throat> you mentioned Stanley Kaufman uh, earlier. Yeah. And most of his films were were met with critical disdain, uh, and then years later, a lot of these same critics would come around. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the, the Kubrick's movies are are films that you have to grapple with. Um, and I feel that that's happened with most of his filmography, and it's starting to happen with Eyes Wide Shut, where people are going back and reassessing and saying yeah. to themselves, I missed something. 
that this isn't a disappointment. <laughs> uh, yeah. Do you do you find that Eyes Wide Shut is a kind of fitting bookend to his career? Well, it's I don't yes, in that it's a typical Kubrick property. I mean, it's Freudian. It comes out of Central Europe in the in the 1920s, and it's about Central Europe at the turn of the century. That was the world from which Kubrick. Kubrick's family came, and he was always oriented toward Europe and its horrors in that era, so it's typical in that sense. I know Christiane Kubrick was disappointed that he made the film. She thought he thought about it too long, and that it, you know, she just didn't see the appeal of it. Um, But it's, you know, he thought about, I guess he discovered that back in the 60s, and he didn't make it until the 90s. and of course, it was uh, something that he made instead of Aryan Papers. Uh, it's yeah. interesting to think about that in terms of, I want to do Aryan Papers, I want to do Aryan Papers. He gets far along into the production and decides, no, I'd rather go back and do Eyes Wide Shut. So he's fleeing from one project about the same area of the world um, into another one. So maybe that was part of the reason that Christiane thought that this was not the film he really should have made or wanted to make. So in that sense, maybe it's not the last film he should have made. But I agree with you that, like as with any Kubrick film, you go back, you're going to see more. And I just noticed, I use it in class, and I'm using it this semester in a class because it's a class on Freudian psychology, and we're going to read Schnitzler's little novel and see Kubrick's film, and it's, of course, it's all about dreams and how dreams are structured according to Freud. And the last time I showed it in class, I realized something. Um, you know, uh, Tom Cruise on his mm-hmm. Odyssey, he's at the Sonata Cafe when Nick gets the phone call about the job, and then Tom's going to go, Bill Harford's going to go and get a costume so he can go to this party that Nick's playing at. And it's interesting, he he gets into a taxi, of course, and he takes the taxi over to the place where he's going to rent the costume. And if you look in the into the windows and the doors, the glass doors that he is facing when he's going up to call the person in the shop, you can see the neon lights from the Sonata Cafe which means that, again, it's either a terrible continuity error on Kubrick's part, or he has just taken a taxi down a street into another street that is right across the street from where he was. And then if you go through the film, you'll you'll see that almost every taxi ride he takes takes him down the same street. And that's a perfect representation of Freud's notion of the return of the repressed. You keep doing the same things because you don't understand why you're doing them and it's just wonderful if you you know it's it's great to have all these digital machines now because you can stop and you can freeze frames and so forth he is going down the same street every time wow. every time he takes a taxi he ends up in the same street and of course that's very freudian no matter what you do it's always the same problem because it all goes back to that central problem that you have so i think eyes wide shut even if it's not his greatest film if that has any meaning it's one to which people can go and return because I think I think Kubrick had a sense that it might well be his last film, so I think he pulled out all the stops. And I yeah. think in every scene, 
there are incredible numbers of small details. There were a lot in The Shining. There are even more in Eyes Wide Shut. Just mm. small little items, books and colors, and 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 that whole thing about taking the taxi to nowhere. Um, so Eyes Wide Shut, I think, will be more fun to look at over and over again than even some of his others. It's so invigorating to talk about Kubrick. I I I, I get so giddy every time I get into yeah, a discussion. I, on did him. you ever meet him? No, no, no. Never. Neither did I. I would love would love to have, but he was I didn't a little really. Appre- I did yeah. I didn't really appreciate him uh, fully until I started doing the series, okay. and and part one of the reasons why I started the series is because I I wanted to grapple with his work and and know what I wasn't getting from it. Um, I mean, it took it took me a while because he didn't make movies like others made them. He didn't direct you on how to feel like so many right. movies do. And he didn't um, make too many movies either. <laughs> so. No, but the movies that he did make were so rich and so dense with yes. so, so much that they, they were savoring them. Did you hear the theory? Uh, it was isn't a theory, but I th- thought this might interest you if you don't know about it. Would, they would screen The Shining, two screens side by side, uh, one going from beginning to end, the other going from end to beginning. I've never and heard that. There were mirror uh-huh. s- scenes uh, all the way through it, like 20, say 20 minutes in from the beginning, Jack was throwing the ball, 20 minutes from the end, Wendy picks up the bat. I mean, that isn't the the, the exact time, but uh-huh. it was almost almost like Jack was throwing the ball and Wendy was picking up the bat, preparing for it. Uh, over and over again, okay. there are these m- mirror scenes, and the movie meets uh, when he hugs the woman in the bathtub. Oh, that's I don't know the exact that center of the film? Yes. Yes. Wow, that's amazing. I hadn't heard that. That's incredible. <laughs> Just another layer that uh makes that movie so special. Um I wanted to ask you finally about uh what kind of Holocaust movie he would have made because obviously there have been many, most famously Schindler's List. Um but I think he had a problem finding out how you could truly represent the horror, I mean, how could you film that? How do you think the tone of a Kubrick Holocaust film would have differed from the others that we've seen? Well, from what we know about Aryan Papers, apparently it was going to be very, very atmospheric. As usual, it would be... I got the impression from having looked at the sorts of production work that he had done on the... Uh, on that project, and and I hope I'm going to be going to the Kubrick archives next summer. I hope I can find even more. But clearly, he was doing the type of meticulous research he always did, but but on the level of Napoleon, where he I think he collected everything that had ever been written about Napoleon, and mm-hmm. I think he did the same thing here. And as in terms of how the film would look, it would have been very much of a dark but very rich, colorful palette that. Um, maybe with some aspects of black and white in it, too. Um, not black and white as in Schindler's, but with, with the color dialed down so that it would be hard to tell whether it's sometimes whether it's in color. And he was inspired by the cinematographer for a, a German series called Heimat, which was, very much, which was in black and white but occasionally would burst into color. And so I think it would have been very interesting in terms of its sort of your immersion in a world that we know in many ways from the documents and films is black and white, but which, of course, like all life, takes place in 
color. And I think, you know, it's interesting that the property he finally chose, Hilbert said that he should make a, a film on the basis of the diary of the Jewish head of the Warsaw Ghetto. And Kubrick didn't like that idea. I think he found that just too depressing. And instead he chose, and this is somewhat similar to Spielberg Schindler's List, he, he, his, Kubrick's Holocaust film, and it goes back to your question about did he have hope and what do we think about what happens to Danny. Kubrick's Holocaust film was going to be about a survivor. Mm -hmm. You know, people criticized Spielberg and said, you make this great Holocaust film, but it's not about the Jews. It's about, it's not about the Jews who die, the millions of Jews who die. It's about the few, you know, thousand who live. And Kubrick himself was critical. He said, you know, I don't know that that's a Holocaust film because it's about, you know, not the six million who died, but 600 who lived. But at any rate, it's interesting that Kubrick, Kubrick's film too would have been about a survivor. It wasn't about the Jews who died, at least directly. It was about a kid who survived. Now, of course, like Danny, this is a kid, and it's a wonderful novel. If you haven't read the novel, it's one of the best novels I've ever read. I need this to. This kid yeah. literally gives up his innocence. He's He is completely damaged. I mean, the title of the book tells you that, Wartime Lies. He had to live a lie. And it must have been interesting for Kubrick when he read that because a major motif in that book and it's very psychologically acute and this was clearly Begley's experience since it's about his own childhood this young boy who's being hidden Jewish boy hidden as a Christian in Nazi occupied Poland who does he admire the most as a child the German army and the SS because they are mm. so strong and they have great uniforms and they know what they're doing and they're orderly and they're powerful and he can't help but admire them and that Kubrick must have read that and thought, oh boy, that really hits it, is that we're attracted to evil. Isn't that the thing? The worst people mm. ever, and they're attractive. Now, there's a psychological dynamic going on there. It's called identification with the aggressor. When you're afraid of something, you often try to pretend that you're like that thing that you're mm. afraid of so that you can psychologically say, I don't have to be afraid of that because I am that. So... Uh, there are lots of levels, but I think your question is a good one because what kind of Holocaust film was Kubrick planning on making? Oh, yeah, I, we're off the queue now. I just the lady broke in again. Um, <laughs> we're good. I'm sorry. Like an old girlfriend, you know. Um, it just so, won't stop. Yeah. Yeah, but no, I think I think it's interesting that the film that he would have made but finally didn't. Um, displays all the characteristics of the films he did make, but also in a way that show why he couldn't make that film and why when he talked about the Holocaust, it had to be in terms of indirect discourse and in other films like The Shining. And so I think you know, his choice of The Shining is good because, as you probably know, there's been some good literature on how horror films actually deal with the same sorts of things that real disasters deal with. They deal with right. monsters. They deal with death and fear. And so one might say that, gee, isn't it inappropriate to use a horror film if you're going to talk about the Holocaust? And true, you, you run the danger of trivializing it. 
On the other hand, a horror film may be exactly the right thing because it is mm-hmm. a film that represents our deepest fears and our recognition about ourselves as being capable of the worst type of evil. Um, I agree. I think I think the horror genre is, is uniquely suited to kind of examine socio-political issues and and really tap into the the, the deepest fears. Obviously, right. Uh, exactly. Yeah. Uh, there's yeah. a, this w- wonderful book by Carolyn Picard and David Frank, Frames of Evil, The Holocaust as Horror in American Film, that really has that as its theme, is mm-hmm. that uh, the horror genre um, is particularly appropriate if it's done right, and I think Kubrick does it right, uh, for investigating these questions, because horror yeah. films are a projection of our own deepest fears. Mm. Mr. Cox, I can't tell you how much I've enjoyed talking uh, to Oh, I've talk enjoyed talking with you. I love to talk to people who like and know Kubrick. <laughs> it's so. been a great pleasure. And I will send you the link to, to every show that you're a part of once they premiere. Okay, and that'll be up uh, about a when? Weeks? The, the, the Shining episode will be up uh, towards uh, late October because we're oh. still doing interviews for it. So we got some time. All right. I'll look forward <laughs> to it. You know, one other thing I forgot to mention. Have you seen... Uh, 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 um, Andrzej Wajda's film Katyn. Uh, I haven't. 2007. It's it's the Polish filmmaker, and it's a film about the the Soviet murder of all those Polish officers during the Second World War. And mm. at the end of that film, it's a wonderful film. And at the end of that film, when they're disinterring all the bodies of these soldiers who were mur- murdered by the NKVD, uh, the the music that they use is the music that Kubrick uses, The Dream of Jacob by Penderecki, a Polish composer. Mm. And I you know, and I, I just wonder if uh, Vida was somehow um, influenced by that, Kubrick's use of that very same music to underscore Jack's descent into madness and the associations with the Holocaust. Uh, same thing with Shutter Island. You know, there are little hints in Shutter Island that, yes. that Scorsese was referring to The Shining. I mean... A, he uses some of the same music, and there's even a, a couple of 42s in it. Um, you know, I never talked mm. to Marty, but I, the, I think there's a bit of homage there, in term, and not just in terms of the film, but in terms of Kubrick's references to the Holocaust. So I recall that we're trying to get him for this for the series. And, okay, uh, oh, ask him about so that, would you? I definitely ask him will. about the Shutter Island and, and the Shining and the Holocaust. I'd love to hear about that. <laughs> oh wow. I noticed that too because I, I when I was as I was watching it, I thought, "Hey, this is the Shining." <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's exactly. clear as day. Yeah. Wow. Now, there's a nice uh, essay online by Thomas Caldwell on it in Cinema Autopsy last year. Mm. Um uh, and there's also been a recent publication uh, in the journal Shofar uh, called Performances of Jewish Identity, Spartacus, where the author mm-hmm. there says that there are some, some maybe some connections to events in the Holocaust in the way that Kubrick structures that history 